Most gracious Heavenly Father, we are in a moment as a nation in desperate need of revival and renewal by the power of your Holy Spirit. Sweep across this land and sweep across our hearts and transform us by your love, by your grace, into the image of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 1. This weekend, we have celebrated the 244th birthday of our nation, the United States of America. And for all of our flaws here in this land, what a great country. What a great nation. What great freedoms that we enjoy here. Think about it for a moment, the, the opportunities that we have here in this country. If you have a good idea and you want to start a small business, you can build up wealth for yourself. Let's say you come up with an idea for a product or a service and there's a demand for it out there. You can offer it and if people will, will, will pay for it, you can build up wealth and, and you can just do that in this country. Imagine that in this country, you can have as many children as you would like to have. Like in other places, like there's a limit. They, they say no. But here, like you just, we can have children. And then imagine like in, in, in worship. Like in some countries, if, if I'm up here today, somebody could bust in the door and, and arrest me and take me off and torture me and, and maybe even kill me. And, and you guys wouldn't even be able to meet here. Like in other places, you would be meeting underground in homes huddled with, with Bibles hidden and, and, and you under the threat of persecution all the time. But here in America, we can just roll down Debbie Lane and pull in here and we can worship together. What great freedom that we have here in this land. That freedom came with great sacrifices, you know. It's not inexpensive. It was paid for with a great price. And, and as I was thinking about it, I thought of the, the Declaration of Independence that, that began this great nation. And, and that there was 56 people, signers of that declaration. And they understood the price of great sacrifice. Take a look at this, that 56 signers were there and that of those, five were captured by the British Army. They were imprisoned, tortured. They were they were put to death. They were tortured to get military information about the movements of the Revolutionary Army. Twelve of them had their homes burned down. Imagine you're standing on your, your block there or your place and you're just watching everything that you have being burned to the ground for the price of freedom. How about this? Two lost sons in the Revolutionary War. Your own children. Like you're, you, this, is, this is real. My son was killed for this nation, is, is what they're saying. Like, wow, the price of freedom. How about this? Two had sons that were captured, and then finally, nine of these signers actually fought and died in the war themselves. A great price was paid for the freedoms that we enjoy today, and let us never forget that. How many here in this room or watching online have ever been to Washington, D.C.? Maybe you've been up there, you saw the Smithsonian, all the monuments, the, you got the Lincoln Memorial. Up there, there's a beautiful monument, the Washington Monument. It's the tallest structure in Washington, D.C. at 555 feet. 
the architect who designed it up on the very top of that point on the east side that faces the rising sun every morning, is he inscribed these two Latin words, laus deo, L-A-U-S-D-E-O, laus, and it means praise be to God or, or to God be the glory. Isn't that incredible that every morning when the sun rises over the capital of this land, the first thing that it sees is this, this structure, to God be the glory. And so our nation was founded on these principles of God's providence and goodness in our lives. And not only that, our faith is built on that same principle. Praise be to God. To God be the glory, great things he has done for us on the cross, not what I could do for myself. To God be the glory. Here's the problem, though, is as believers, as Christians, what we find ourselves is in this dilemma that we're called to live under God, but many times we find ourselves drifting over here and living under the influence of culture and under society. I titled this message this morning, Under God. And we're going to take a look at, at what does it mean to live like that? Our Pledge of Allegiance was written back in 1891 by a man named Francis Bellamy. And in the original version of our Pledge of Allegiance, there's not the phrase under God. It was written by Francis Bellamy, and, and he was, if you look him up, he was a Baptist minister, and he was also a socialist. But So I, I don't know where you come from, but where I come from, those things are like an oxymoron, a Baptist minister and a socialist. It's kind of like jumbo shrimp or like government efficiency. You know, it's like, like what? These things, oxymoron. He was, but he had great intent because he wanted the children in this land to grow up given respect to the flag and, and, and patriotism. And it was then in the 1950s that President Eisenhower, as a as a response to the rise of communism around the world, he went and encouraged and, and he pushed Congress to add those two words, under God, to our Pledge of Allegiance, and they followed through with it. Because he wanted to, to separate our land from other countries out there that, that were agnostic or atheist countries. And he was saying, no, we are founded here under God, and it remains today. And so as we look at that phrase, under God, what does that mean? What does it mean to live under God. This week, I want you to really think about this and not let this message be one that just kind of flies through the air and, and is gone when you, when you get home at lunch. But I want you to, to, to think about this and maybe talk with someone and, and really in your devotionals this week to, to think about what does this mean and reflect on this that, that, and ask yourself, am I living more under God in my life or am I being influenced by the culture. There on your, your outline, on your bulletin, you're going to see a little chart that, that I've made here in a moment we'll get to. But first, we're going to deal with this key question this morning as we look at this message. And this question is this, how do we live under God in a culture that is increasingly hostile to God? How do, how do we, how do I, as Jet Jones, live under God in a world that is increasingly hostile toward God. And so as you look at the chart there on your bulletin, you're going to see under culture in a scale from 1 to 10, and over here is under God. And before you just grab a pen real quickly and, and just circle a number that you might think, I want you to, to wait a moment 
and just think about this. And we're going to take a look at several areas in our lives that God is, is speaking into and he's, he's challenging us today. The first one that I want you to consider is this as you think about your life is in entertainment. Am I living under culture or under God? It's like in the, the, the books that I'm reading, the content that I'm looking at on the internet, the things that I'm looking at on Netflix, the things that I'm entertaining, the music that I listen to, what I say like, you know, uh, I don't even give a thought to what God thinks about it. Like, who cares? Like, that's the far extreme over here under culture would say, it doesn't even, like, I don't even have a conscience about it. Or the other side, so you know what? I do have a filter over here. And, it, and I think that this, this might not be honoring God. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay away from that. And I'm going to, so like, where would you say right there in entertainment? The next one would be is words. And this one, this one challenges me right here. It's like in the last week as I think back to my, my conversations like in the words that I've used, have I been like God honoring? You know, am I building people up? Am I, have I said a cuss word or have I, you know, I'm tearing someone down or told a joke that I'm not proud of? And, like, and so then, like that would be like I'm living under culture or I say, no, I'm going to use words that just build up, you know, and I'm very careful and, and I'm growing in grace to, to let love and understanding flow off of my tongue as I live under God. How about the next one in our resources? This is what God has poured into our lives and blessed us with. And, and we say, man, I live in, with that kind of a concept that everything I have, I'm just a steward of. And so under God, I'm, I'm generous with what I have and I share it with other people. Or I'm over here under culture. I don't even give a thought to the church or God or sharing anything. I'm just using all my stuff just to increase my stuff and just get it, and like just take care of what I want over here. Like that's, that would be the, the extremes there. And how about this, the last one is in self-worth. Where do we find our, our self-worth in, in this world we live in? If you're under God, you say, you know what? God defines who I am. I'm not worried about the labels that people put on me because I'm a baptized, forgiven child of God who he, he died and, and rose again for me, and I am loved, and I find my identity completely in there. Or do I come over here and say, no, I, I, I live for the approval of the culture. And like, they, they judge me, and so I got to roll up in the best this, and I got to wear the best that to get their best approval from, from everybody. And so I, I, I'm just consumed with this. And now, don't get me wrong, it's okay to have these things. It's okay to, to do them, but the Part of the question is, is, is am I putting my, my, my full identity and my hope and my trust over here rather than looking to my Savior to, to define my identity? Here's a striking point that in the middle of all this and we look at this scale that's sobering when we think about it is that the Bible says our hearts are deceptive beyond anything else. And so that many times we don't even have a clear idea how far we might be on one side. Of, like we can't even like really like define where we are a lot of times. And I'll, as an example, I want you to think about, have you ever been to like that party at Christmas time or somewhere like, and somebody's had like a little too much to drink? You know what I'm talking about, that guy? Like they're gone just a little overboard and they don't even realize yet that they've crossed the line, okay? Like they're over there and they might be 
be like just a little intoxicated. And so they, they're like, you go, hey, man, are you good? And they're like, yeah, I'm fine. You're like, I don't know, man, if you really are. And like, then when you're in that state, when it's like not clear, like things get funnier than they really are. You know, like, and then, and like you're funnier than you really are. And then like you look around and people begin to look better than they really do. And like you start looking better than you think you do. And then like you're just there. And you've seen that guy, you know, at the end of the night, he's fumbling around for his keys. And you're like, hey, dude, uh, let me help you. I think I ought to give you. He's like, no, I'm fine. Like, in our, in our minds, and they're cloudy, we don't even sometimes recognize that the state we're in. And, and some, sometimes we can deceive ourselves in thinking like, oh, man, like, I'm really good. Like, I'm not as bad as all them. And the Lord's saying, I want you to take a look at yourself. And, and by my spirit, I want you to, to really analyze and pray through where do you find yourself? Because here's the truth that we're going to find today. Here's a question. What if we have become so intoxicated by culture that we don't even realize how far that we've drifted away from God? What if we're so intoxicated by the lure of the world that we don't even realize how far we've gone? Here in the next few moments, I want us to take a look at a an Old Testament character that is an example for all of us of how to live a bold life for God in the middle of an ungodly culture. And that man is Daniel. If you've grown up around the church, you've heard of him, but if you haven't and, he, and you're new and maybe you're just a young child and maybe though you've gone to Sunday school or, and you've heard of Daniel in the lion's den. Remember they threw him, Daniel in there and God shut the mouths of the lions and they didn't eat him. And, and so it's a great Bible story. That happened like later on. But before all of that, back in Daniel's life, we go to chapter one of the book of Daniel. And let me give you just a little backstory here. There was another land over here called Babylon that wasn't God's people. They were a pagan society and they had a king named Nebuchadnezzar. That's a cool name, Nebuchadnezzar. He's over here. He decides he's going to go over here and invade Judah, the land of God's people. And he, he captures them. And then he's going to take them into captivity. And not only that, he, he gets some of the, the artifacts from the temple. Of the, they worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our true God. And they, they just took all of these, these things over here that were used for his worship. And they took them back over here. And they used them in like pagan worship over here and just defiled it. So it's into this setting that we jump in to find the character Daniel in chapter 1, verse 3. Let's listen to it. Then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. So Nebuchadnezzar, he wanted the best of the best guy, the smartest guy, the engineer, the doctor. He wanted the, the guys that over here, the best looking to be in his court and to serve him. So then it says this, Aspenaz was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that they entered the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar. Try to say that real quick. To Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. And so here we go. We got King Nebuchadnezzar. He, he gets these smart young men, and he's, he's bringing them over out of Israel, their culture, and he's bringing them over to Babylon. And so he's going to excuse me, indoctrinate and enculturate them into his deal. So how's he going to do that? What's his strategy? Well, he says, we're going to teach them a new language and literature, and we're going to change their names. And so here's what his strategy was. He said, I'm going to change their, their thinking. And if I can change their thinking, the way they, they see things, then it'll change their, their beliefs. And if I can change their beliefs, then I can change their behavior, and they'll begin to act in a new way. And isn't that the strategy of the enemy, the devil? He's still, it's his oldest time, and he's still doing it now. He says, if I can use culture that you're living in out there, and I'm going to change your thinking, and I'm going to change your perspective, and it's not so bad. And then that change your belief. You go, yeah, right, that's not so bad. And then it like changed your behavior, and then you begin to just accept sin. It's not like the frog in the kettle idea. Like if you were to take a frog and you just throw him in the bowl, and water, he jumps out of there like he's no way. But if you put him in a, a pot of cold water and you start the fire and slowly raise the temperature over time, he stays in there. He doesn't jump out and then what? He ends up just perishing in there. Why? Because it heated up and he never even realized what was going on. We, we have an enemy that's coming after us. He wants to change the way we think, believe, and behave. And you see it out there in the world. You see it in your families. There's so many Christians that call themselves Christians that are living a lukewarm relationship with Jesus, a halfway relationship with the Lord. And Jesus in the book of Revelation, he's talking to those churches back then and to us, and he says, return to your first love. I'm calling you back. Come back to me. Don't serve me halfway. I want you to go all the way. Be all in. Remember on the Sea of Galilee when he called his disciples, he, he went up and he said, leave your nets. Come and follow me. They left, and they went all in with Jesus. And he's, he's calling us. Imagine this in our society we live in, like to think that a strategy of being halfway in anything is like a good thing, okay? Like that argument wouldn't fly anywhere like you go to the gym. You're like, yeah, I'm gonna halfway do the gym. I went today, I worked out real hard. I'm gonna go back in about six weeks, and I'm gonna hit it again, man. I'm gonna get in shape. Dude, like what? How about your marriage? Like you go, hey, I, I talked to my wife about three months ago. Yeah, I think it's about time we have another conversation. That's good. We're going to work on our marriage here. Like what? You can't go halfway in, in this stuff. And so Jesus is saying, I want you to go all in in your relationship with me. I want you to be with me 100%. Daniel was 100% committed in his culture, in a culture in Babylon where he faced every kind of temptation you could think of, a pagan culture, and here he is, and how did he do it? It's this, that he realized this truth right here, to faithfully live under God, we need to make some predetermined resolutions. Before we hit temptation and encounter it, we need to, to decide what our resolutions are. Look in verse eight of Daniel chapter one. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. He resolved. 
in the Hebrew language, the word resolve is a word called lave. And it has a deep meaning and the nuances are, are that, that he was determined, that he, he had made up his mind. He had set his resolve. He had set his heart that here's a line that I'm not going to cross. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar, you pulled us over here from, from Judah and, and you changed our language. Okay, I can deal with that. You, you changed my name and it's even the name of, of some pagan god. And Okay, whatever. But here's the deal. When he says, when it comes to the food, I am not going to defile myself. You go, what is up with this? What's wrong with the food? It's like good food from the king's deal, his table. It's like good. Here's what it is. The scholars say that that food that the king was going to serve him had once been sacrificed to pagan gods. And in other times that the food was prepared in ways over here that was contrary to the, the religious Jewish customs of laws of how to, to, to slaughter an animal and, and all those. And so David, Daniel, he had this in his heart. He said, it's not about the food. It's about something that's behind the food, and that's my God. I'm not going to eat the food that has been sacrificed to a pagan God. I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to defile myself with something that, that is going to dishonor my Savior, my God. And so he's showing us that he had predetermined. He had resolutions. And so God is calling us to, to take a look at that. And I want you to do something for me this week. In your, your devotional time, I want you to maybe get your journal or a piece of paper and to make two columns. And on one side, I want you to write at the top, I always will, and then leave that one blank over there. And then on this side, I always won't. Now, I know when we use the word always, it's tricky because, you know, we don't always do everything, and, and, and we're sinful human beings. And sometimes we're going to mess up, and that's where the grace of God is so beautiful. But as far as coming up with resolutions, here's, here's a thought. Like, maybe these are your core beliefs that you're going to say, I always will, and then you fill in the blank. Like, I always will. Stand up for my faith wherever I go. I could be with my family. I could be at work. But I'm going to always talk about my faith and what Jesus has done for me. Like, I'm not going to deny, like, be, hmm? I always will be a generous person with what God has given me. Or over here on this side, I always won't. Like, I always won't go hang around with people that I know are going to lead me into sin or go to places that I know are going to trip me up into sin. And so I'm just going to resolve now, right now, before the temptation, I'm just resolving. And then I resolve that I won't handle money in a way that would compromise my integrity. Like something like that. Just you, it's between you and God. You come up with these core ones and you just say, Lord, help me to draw some lines like Daniel who, who laved, who resolved, who, who made a determination that he was going to set his mind on not being defiled and honor his God. Finally, as Jesus' followers, we realize this, that we don't run from culture. We influence it. That we're not afraid of culture. Jesus said, you're to go and be salt and light, didn't he? He said, I want you to go out there and you're going to be in the world, but not of it. I need you to go out there and I need you to go live an example of me in, t in an ungodly culture. I love that Martin Luther, he taught this concept in his theology of the, the two kingdoms. Maybe you've heard of this, the two kingdoms. You said, what is this? It, he's saying that 
first of all, as believers in Jesus, as his followers, we're part of the kingdom of God. And it's like the cross. We have a vertical relationship with our heavenly father. And so we're part of his kingdom. But then the, the horizontal bar means that we're, we're part of this world we live in. Like we're part of the, the, we're citizens of America. We're part of this nation. And so we have two citizenships, one of heaven and one here on earth. And he says that that's a great thing because I'm sending you out to be my ambassadors into the world. Let's look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. What is an ambassador? Think about it for a minute. It's a representative that's sent to somewhere else, another country, to represent and to, to bring a message. If you think about the, the UN for a minute, like we have UN ambassador, we send the, that person in there. Like they go, hey, here's what America believes and what, and so they go and represent to these people. And so God is saying, I'm sending you as my ambassador from heaven with a message of the gospel to go infiltrate the, the culture and to, to help shape it. And you go, okay, that's cool, but what, why is this so important? Look at the, how the verse ends. He says, why? Because as though God were making his appeal through us. It's like God himself is speaking through you. And you can get into places that, that me and Pastor John and Pastor Tim can't in your workplace and interact with people we'll never meet. But he's sending you out there to be an ambassador, his spokesman. I love the book of Joshua back in the Old Testament. They were in, heading into the promised land and Joshua was a leader and he's nearing the end of his life. And so he calls together all the tribes of Israel at Shechem and he's up there and he's gonna make a, a speech to them and a challenge. And he said, look, God, our God has brought us here through everything we've experienced, through the Red Sea, through every, and like, so here we are, and so I'm about to die, but I'm telling you, don't go back to the God of your ancestors back in Egypt. Don't go, turn to the gods of the, the, the tribes that are over here, and these false gods, and he says, but if that's unacceptable for you, like, okay, like, whatever, but he says, choose you this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, what does he say? We will serve the Lord. He's saying, I don't care what everybody else in the culture is doing. We're going to serve the Lord. And I was talking to a young mom this week at VBS as they were picking up children. And I was, we were talking about that verse, choose you this day. And she said, you know, on my street, my kids love to play video games. But there's a lot of other kids on my block. And some of them like play games that are like these real violent ones. For, for the age of my kid, it's like, I just don't want my, you know, like, five-year-old exposed to the, these machine gun things over here. And so, like, I, I, don't, I just don't let my kids go and play these games. And some of these kids, the other kids or parents may be like, y'all are weird. You know, like, what? And they're like, I don't care what they think. Just choose you this day whom you will serve. We're going we're gonna to live under God over here, and we're going to make decisions. And you're going to find that in your life. As you make some decisions that are contrary to culture, you're going to get some looks. You're going to get some, some weird. But you say, choose you this day whom you will serve, but we are going to serve the Lord. So, how do we do this? How do we live under God? Peter gives us a great starting place when he says this in chapter 5 of 1 Peter. 
humble yourselves, therefore, and look at this phrase, where? Under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Humble yourselves. How many times do we feel like we know it all? Like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Like, I got this, and like, we're so just self-confident, and we need to humble ourselves and realize that we don't have it all together. See, humility says before your Father, God, show me. Show me the areas where I need to, to write my relationship with you, where I need to change what I'm doing, Lord. I come in humility under God's mighty hand. Let's never forget this, that, that we have a righteous and a, a mighty God, and we don't just casually wink at God anytime that we, we want him to come through for us. He's a righteous and a mighty God, but at the same time, he's a merciful Savior. He's a great God, and it says this, that he may lift you up in due time. Have you been, have you been beaten down? Has the society said you're last? He says, I've come to, to make you first. He said, I've come to lift up my son on the cross for you so that I could lift you up out of your sin and mire and set you on solid ground for all of eternity. He has come to lift you up. Oh, my friend, Jesus' way is so, it's so countercultural. It's so different than the culture. The culture over here, it says brag on yourself, build yourself up, and Jesus says no. Deny yourself. Over here, the culture says when somebody wrongs you, you just hate them and get them back. Jesus says no. I want you to love your enemies and pray for them. Over here, the culture says live for, for right now. Jesus says I want you to live for eternity. You know what the hope we have, the good news that we have today, church, is this, that we mess this up. We get off track. We, we feel the gravitational pull of culture pulling us like a current toward itself. And, and, and we find ourselves over here. But the good news is, comes from Luke chapter 15. If you remember the story about the 99 sheep, that, that there was 99 that stayed over here. And one sheep wandered off and kind of did his own, got in the wilderness and, and was getting over here. And Jesus, what, he just let him go and rode him off? No, he said, I'm coming after you. He came and he went and he found him. He picked up that lamb. And he said, let's go back. Let's get a restart. Let's, let's come back together. And he comes to you and me today and he said, I know you've been influenced by the culture, but I don't want you to live there anymore. I want you to, to come back in grace and be renewed and live in relationship with me. As we land this plane this morning, I want to give you three action steps to close with this morning. The first one would be this, to live under God, take captive every thought. This isn't my idea. This came from the Apostle Paul as he said, you know, I'm going to take captive every thought. What does this mean? It's like, I don't just let my thoughts run wild with no, no boundary, no, no, just any discipline at all. When I have a thought that enters my mind that's like under the culture, not under God, I'm going to grab a hold of it and discipline and say, no, no, I'm not going to let that continue. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to focus in, and I'm going to come back to the Lord. The second thing is this. Predetermine your resolutions. Take some time this week, like I said, to write down your core values and what I stand for. And the final one is this. Humble yourself and pray. As we celebrate our independence as a nation, it's time to come together as as his people and reaffirm our dependence on God as our only hope 
for this land in a nation that's divided in communities. They're spewing hate, and you see it on the TVs everywhere. And there is no way that we're going to experience healing in this country by some flowery speech or just some, somebody trying to just do it on their own strength. It's going to take a supernatural movement of God across this land to change hearts and call people back to himself. Oh, my friend, today, God, he's speaking an ancient message to our culture today. He's speaking a word that he said to his people in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, and he's saying it all over again to us today. And he says this, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and will seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land under God. It's the only place to be, oh Lord. Let that begin with me to your glory, amen.